are listening to the Birth Bruja podcast, an extension of birthbruja.com. We are an online educational platform devoted to decolonial approaches to healing and reproductive care. Here, friends, we get personal. We get political. We talk business. We talk shit. We talk pleasure. We learn and unlearn and find growth by embodying practices of healing and justice. We are your hosts. My name is Eric Guajardo Johnson, and my pronouns are she, they. And my name is Mickey McHenry. My pronouns are she, her. Let's dive in. Hi, and welcome. This is Mickey McHenry. My pronouns are she, her, Aya, and I'm the operations manager and podcast co-host for the Birth Bruja podcast. Today, we're going to have Angelique or Omi Gihan joining us to discuss baby wearing. Angelique, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes. Hi, my name is Angelique uh, or Omi Gihan. I use any pronoun and I, <laughs> I find that titles are just specific to whatever work I'm doing at the moment. So to be able to get to the the material I know that we want to chat about today, I'll leave that off, but I'm always open to um, discussing that. <laughs> so. Thank you. So since today we are discussing baby wearing, I, as I've participated in a couple of your workshops now um, and just getting to know you, I'd really like to know why you decided to become a baby wearing consultant. Yeah. Um, and it's been great to have you in those sessions. I, I like to work responsively. And so sometimes when I get in a mode of just going through information, it, it feels so one-sided. And instead, what I do in my head is think about all the responses that I have gotten in the past or the responses that I can imagine people having and have that interaction and conversation in my mind as I'm teaching. <laughs> so, um, yeah, but why I decided to become a baby wearing consultant was that after I got to a place where I was using the carriers on my own, I had to troubleshoot. Um, I had had to troubleshoot and, and work out how to get them to work for me because I did not learn from friends and family. I learned from like who were immediately around me. I learned from people on the internet. We call them pocket friends. Um, there were people around me who did use carriers, but it wasn't, you know, this thing that seemed fully integrated um, with the way people were parenting when I had my kids. And, um, and so once I had learned and I had managed to find in-person groups where I lived and I showed up, I began to offer help. We were all helping each other. They were peer support groups. And over time, people found that whatever the way was that I had figured things out and how I shared the information, it happened to work for them. So more and more people started asking me for help. And then because of where I was in the friend circle, people kept sending their friends to me. Oh, I know Angelique's using those carriers. Why don't you ask? So I would get referrals from friends, from friends, of friends. And over time, um, I, I had more and more requests for my time and energy 
And I enjoyed the problem solving. I enjoyed supporting the connection that families can have with each other. Um, but the more distant people were from me, the more they seemed to take my time for granted. And I would have no call, no shows. And this is when I was still doing it just free as you know, part of a community. We're sharing knowledge, we're supporting each other. And, um, and so then I also noticed some gatekeeping from people who had credentials, doctors, nurses, pediatricians, OTs, um, even midwives and doulas, people who now are perceived as being very baby carrier friendly, very baby wearing advocate oriented. Um, and so between thinking I needed a way to separate my personal time or, or encourage people to understand the value of my time and seeing that gatekeeping, I decided, well, maybe I'll do it as a little freelance thing. I was already freelancing in graphic design and editing and consulting. So I thought, that's just another kind of consulting I'll do. <laughs> so I did the thing where I was like, well, I don't feel qualified. I'm not trained in this. I was still um, enmeshed in these concepts of elitism where credentials and certifications meant that you, like whoever got the credentials and the letters knew more, were better in some way, were more valid than peer-to-peer -peer or, you know, um, directly passed on knowledge that hadn't been gotten the stamp of approval from establishment. So I got a certification and it was part of that that taught me how much bullshit there was to all of it. I knew it a little bit, but it helped me really clarify. Um, and so I decided to do it because I wanted to help get that certification because at that time I had the time and money to go get it, to sit in a class, pay, I think at the time it was 700 some dollars uh, for four days, which included staying with friends, but paying for travel. Um, and, you know, it, it was huge. And I thought, oh, this is the way that'll be a job I can have after and I'll do consulting and I can always do sliding scale and I can do all these things. Um, but yeah, I decided to do it to value my own time, show that I did and continue to share information and knowledge. Um, and then after I did that, I ended up just <laughs> entering all these other, these circles of, of connection where things were twisted and people did things without knowing why or feeling unfulfilled. And then one thing led to another. And so now we're just like teaching on the internet and, <laughs> and connecting with people all over the world, really about not just carrying practices, but how, how we communicate and teach how we transform the harms we encounter, um, how we, you know, reclaim our cultures and uh, repair damages that have been done intergenerationally. So <laughs> it's all connected. Thank you so much for that. I, I had no idea um, that this is even part of your story. It just sounded like it happened so organically. And like, you were just meant to be a baby wearing consultant. And um, I admire you for the work you do and, and witnessing you. 
um, as a facilitator is, has been truly like amazing for me. Um, and it's interesting that you felt the need to have that certificate because I find that a lot of other birth workers have felt that way, um, when they've already been doing the work. So, uh, actually for me personally, as a, as a birth worker, as a doula, I was being a doula before I even had a certificate. Right. And I thought that that, I also thought that that was the way that I would make a career out of it. And it turns out the certificate has served me, um, good exactly one time in my in my 12 years as a birth worker. Um, and so it's, it's really interesting that these practices are treated the way that they are. And, and like you said, gate, gate kept the way that they are. Um, so thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And, and it, I think it helps offer, um, some sort of inspiration for, for those that maybe don't know where to start or aren't sure how to go about teaching baby caring to their own clients. Um, so thank you. And I know that you mentioned as well that, um, that you were part of a community and that baby wearing had helped with your parenting. Are there any specific benefits you can think of that baby wearing offered you during during um the time that you were wearing and and anything specific that you can think of that served you as a parent oh yes Uh, absolutely many 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 ways I think maybe this is one of the most fundamental but when I had my babies I had already known I wanted to carry them up against my body somehow. And it was because I had been reflecting on my childhood and remembered wanting always to be carried, wanting always to be up and included. Um, I can reflect now that maybe some of that was because I needed you know, I joke about being a robot alien, and this is this is meant to be sort of a reclamatory, self-deprecating, loving way of perceiving my own idiosyncrasies or neurodivergence. Now that I recognize, as my my peers had pointed out to me, and then I confirm, so peer diagnosed, self recognized, <laughs> self confirmed, autistic person with ADHD which it seems like more and more people are recognizing now. And I don't perceive that as something um, that sort of dilutes an identity or experience. I see it as something where whether anyone has a label that a clinician would diagnose them with, without even entering into a full examination of how problematic our medical industrial complex can be around diagnosis, over, under, and misdiagnosis of specific peoples, <laughs> you know, um, I realized I wanted to be held so that I could get more data on what was going on, so that I could understand, um, so that I could feel included. 
And, and so I thought I wanted to offer that to my children so that I could also understand what was going on with them and then maintain communication channels where they can let me know what they need so that I could respond to that specifically, just as I like to teach responsibly with engagement or interaction. I want those in relationships. And, and so I was like, oh yeah, I'll get these kids. And I went on the research rabbit hole. I read reviews, I asked around, and I ended up with two carriers that I got to work, but not really well. And then I had lunch with a friend who was using a ring sling um, what I started out with were a Baby Bjorn original and a Moby, which is a stretchy wrap. And a lot of people begin with something similar and they, they can be great. Uh, and they also have some limitations. But this friend had a ring sling and it just, I knew that that was going to be a better solution for us. So even with the carriers that weren't a perfect fit for me, I was able to feel my children close to me. I was able to engage with them. I was able to move through a day and have my hands more available, um, play with them, include them in what I was doing. Um, it gave me something to focus on, to learn. And then a later benefit was also that um, I was able to connect with more people who were interested in self-awareness and connecting to our, our heritage practices and being respectful of each other. Now, of course, among those groups are people who didn't give a fuck, but you know, that's just humans. But yeah, the, it was sort of this reparenting concept that I could do and offer for my children what I didn't get and prove to myself that it was possible for a parent to do these particular things and and that it wasn't my fault that my parents weren't the parents who I needed to have arrived in an adulthood and experience a childhood that led me to have accurate self-assessment, um, appropriate levels of care uh, for myself and others, and you know, be in touch with my abilities and what I need, like the kinds of choices that I needed to make in the world. So yeah, I mean, carrying was fun. It was another way to meet other people um, and to talk about, to enter into conversations about our values that weren't necessarily uh, literally activating or triggering for people. Like a lot of other folks, regardless of childbearing status or gestational status, have strong opinions about things like circumcision and diapering and education, about, um, I don't know, sleep and feeding and birth choices and so many things that make it hard for a lot of folks to, <laughs> to just have conversations in which they display curiosity about each other and their differences, uh, not even getting to identities that, that people share and have. Um, but with the carriers, um, it sort of allowed a little bit of distance for people to talk about. And I'm also like a crafting geek. Like I love fiber arts and colors. I used to do right, graphic design. So then the designs involved, the integrity around that, the inventiveness around carrier design. We got to talk about all of that. 
and then um, see the babies. And of course, I love babies. So getting to see babies in all these carriers and people having fun, you know, making outfits and matching and expressing themselves when this was a carrier, you could remove it. Um, but, you know, so many people who parent feel judged about their other choices. And so this was something that could be a little bit separate. The carrier could express your, your whole identity or it might not, it might just be a piece of baby gear. And so it left room for people to make what they wanted out of it a little bit. Um, and then it was also fun to see the babies put, you know, tie bandanas and flats, like as in cloth diapers and, um, people handmade mini carriers like doll carriers and kids would have their trucks and dinosaurs and dolls and favorite toys in the, in their own little carriers and seeing them, you know, move around already having connection to things they could do if they ever have children or take care of them. Um, lots of, lots of healing in the doing of it beyond just the practical or the, you know, biological, physiological, reasons to baby wear that we might say could be normative as opposed to benefits. Wow. Thank you so much. Um, it sounds to me like you were able to heal a lot of your own inner child and, and really create that strong bond with your little ones by including them and, and keeping them physically close to you. And it sounds like you gained a great community um, to be a part of and to participate in. Uh, it just sounds so dreamy and lovely. Of course, I'm sure it, it did not come without its hardships. Um, but it, it just sounds to me like it was really beneficial for your family and, and for the communities that you were in. Um, Thank you for that. Was there anything else you wanted to add about it? Yeah, I actually, one of the things I remember enjoying most was when the children were on me in a carrier, it was much easier for me to fend off well-meaning strangers or people I knew who did not honor consent before touching um, and so just my own preferences about wanting to honor body autonomy and not have people make contact with you without permission um, allowed me to have be at the ready with my children close. Whereas in a stroller or um, if they were out in the world, like on their own, moving around, physically protecting them was much more difficult. Um, there was also a time when I... Um, was using crutches or and um, motorized scooters and having the carriers helped me do what I what I wouldn't have been able to without them. And in some ways, the parenting I did then was not parenting I should have done unsupported in that specific way, but that was the fact of it. I, I needed more resource. And so I was able to use the carriers to actually accomplish what I needed to in a day when I couldn't have without it, uh, without them. Um, but yeah, that was just one more thing I remembered. I was like, oh yeah, I like being able to slap somebody's hand away when they reached too fast. <laughs> I love that. I love that you went into 
parent mode and instantly were like, I need to protect myself and, and my child. I do think that you're right. A stroller does off. It almost is an invitation because they're outward facing into the world. So it's inviting and welcoming for perhaps well-meaning people. Um, and also about you using crutches and motorized scooters, that brings me to my next question of how can we as birth workers ensure that baby wearing remains accessible to everybody that, you know, anybody that um, wants to baby wear? Yeah, this is a huge, huge question. So, so few words, so simple, <laughs> so huge. Um, accessibility and, you know, it's, it's to me connected with justice because how we access resources um, reflects our ability to have freedom um, in ways that aren't limited by other people's hoarding of power or control. Um, so for me, access includes so many factors and I'm definitely not going to get to them all. <laughs> um, so since we started with mobility, that's one, I think there's no one set of, there's no one checklist. There's no one way to make sure that any practice like carrying babies is accessible to everyone. But what I would love for us to increasingly be able to do is be flexible, creative, responsive in how we support people who want to access a particular practice or skill or tool moment by moment. So just, you know, if somebody has a specific condition, movement, um, disability, then let's consult with them and ask how, what do you need? This is the thing that I do with my body and my ability. Um, what do you need for yours? And when we think ability, it's, it's body mind stuff, right? If we're thinking disability justice, it could be that we're teaching in ways that allow for people with different processing modes and different ways of accessing language and communication, um, different languages themselves, um, then different ways of receiving information. So let's be re ready and responsive to adjust to that. Um, I think we can recognize, I definitely do, that in some cases, making something more accessible to a person or group of people limits other people's access to it. And so that's why I hope there will increasingly be more and more of us teaching in the ways that we know work for the people who we support um, and working with each other to be consistent about other elements of the messaging. Um, you know, we, we think about access also in terms of, of money, of affordability, of availability. And, and so if we, if we think that People can only use carriers they've bought from a store that has passed specific manufacturing, testing regulations and things. Those carriers are 
even the ones that are the least expensive, I think are still in the $50 range. And the ones that we tend to recommend that would allow for a caregiver to carry a baby on the front, hip, and back, that allow for feeding, human milk feeding, breast, body, or chest feeding without having to remove the carrier. These are often over $100, sometimes $150. And, and that's just you know, regular line stuff. There are definitely people who get into crafting, who get into the the art side of things. And those carriers are are like collector items. They're not priced in the same way that I would say regular everyday consumer items will be. Um, but making sure that everyone can actually get the tools and that when they can get the tools that we would use around our house, be it a bed sheet or a scarf um, or another kind of any kind of cloth that we would use around the house to carry our babies, towels, tablecloths, the things that we used before, that we as humans used before the modern marketplace, um, that we don't stigmatize that and make it inaccessible through negative judgment. Which is to say, if somebody was using a piece of you were using a piece of cloth and showed up at their doctor's office or the hospital, and somebody assumed that they must not know what they're doing um, because it's not something that passed inspection or that they're endangering their child, then we make that practice increasingly inaccessible. So I think we, as birth workers, can specifically advocate to make sure those attitudes and beliefs don't affect actual families and that we've questioned and unpacked those within ourselves. So internal work and then make it external, make it have real effects in the world, remove policies that are problematic, put in place policies and procedures that protect uh, people honoring their own practices, um, their own parenting ways. Um, um, and yeah. And then being flexible, being uh, in, inviting feedback, um, being accountable about it. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm trying, how do I do the, uh, bird's eye view of accessibility? <laughs> and I think integrating the knowledge of how to support carrier use in more different areas of family support work so that we are not siloed. Like whenever people think about you know, what is included in, what do you need when you have a baby? Oh, you need people say diapers. They know they, they want a car seat now if they use cars like that. Um, most people think of a sleep area, like a crib or a pack and play. They think of a stroller. They think of, you know, feeding implements and toys and clothes. But if we get to the point, and I, I've seen it increasingly be the case, that a carrier of some kind is also included then I think that makes it more accessible uh, because we in community can be really creative and innovative um, uh, about solving the access ourselves when we need to. Um, and just it being more available inherently, I think will increase access and, and increase the number of people with different needs, with different um, preferences, interests, all those things uh, to make their own out of the practice. And that it also, that would increase access for other people who are more like them, 
than the people who are currently doing whatever the thing is. Thank you so much. And you mentioned advocacy. And I was wondering, that brought me to a different question altogether. But I was wondering what, if any, um, were ways that, how do I put this? I had the thought, and it wasn't fully fleshed. Um, you had mentioned advocacy and that we as birth workers have play an active role in that. In what like ways have you seen baby wearing advocacy and for and advocating for those caregivers? What ways have you seen tangible change? Like, are there policies that you've been able to witness? Um, that have made a difference or were you able to witness a, a specific experience where you had noticed um, that it had made a difference or where the caregiver had told you that you'd made a difference as a birth worker? Um, I know that it can get overwhelming for birth workers to feel like the pressure to advocate, right. For our clients. And I, I know for a lot of us, that's literally what we signed up to do. Um, but it, it can be daunting and, and, it can be hard to come up with those tangible ways. So I think it would be really nice for others to hear in, in ways that maybe you provided um, advocacy for a caregiver or that you witnessed advocacy for a caregiver. Um, okay. I shouldn't be surprised after listening to your interview with Ari about how big your questions are. <laughs> I really enjoyed that. I made sure to listen. I was like, I want to know Mickey a little more before we have this conversation. Um, Thank you. <laughs> but yeah, um, yes, tangible, tangibles around advocacy. Uh, I, I think there is so much here that is related to consent, that is related to power analysis. And I say consent because one of the biggest components of poorly used power, harmfully used power, I think oppression is savioristic behavior. And so if somebody thinks that baby carriers saved their lives or made them the parent they are, and they want other people to carry their babies in baby carriers to do baby wearing, um, but they don't stop and pause and ask, would you like this thing? And have a conversation that allows for agency, that allows for expression and validation, then we're still being a part of imposing a solution without necessarily having sensitivity and, uh, to, and responsiveness to what that family needs, those specific families, all of them. And so, when we do, when I think of like, what is a tangible, what are tangible elements of advocacy? It's, it's really, and I, I love transformative justice, everything about it. <laughs> and, and that's what it's called now, right? It has roots in practices that come from many of our different lineages. Um, but in its current form, there's power analysis, I think, in the exploration of what are the harms being, what is the harm being caused now? 
what are all the different things we can change so that these can never happen again in these same ways. And, and so whenever there's a need for advocacy, what I notice is there has been harm. There is something that has been suppressed. There's something that's blocked. There's something in a way that somebody even needs advocacy for, and that's shitty. Like all of the advocacy or activism that people are doing, like we only need to do it because there's something we're not able to do or access. And I hate that. <laughs> so we can build, we can show great amounts of love and, and, um, problem solving in doing it. But I think that's the first thing I want to recognize is that if we need advocacy, something sucks. So how do we change that? And what's effective is, yeah, looking at where are the blockages? Where are the barriers that make advocacy even needed? And some of them are things we can control, right? Things that we can influence, but not necessarily control and things that are out of our control. And so with the things that are out of our, any one individual control, and so I was like, this is just power analysis. <laughs> then, yeah. um, you know, how do we work together? How do we access more of our own power? How do we combine it and leverage it with others so that we can make those changes? And that's things like policies, that's things like um, organizing, um, having strategies, um, taking stands, education, awareness, um, all that sort of thing. Um, and where we have influence, that too, I mean, everything sort of fades and it, it gradually becomes something where we have the most control, um, the ability to be aware and influence ourselves, um, to address whatever the barriers are that we have to practicing however we want to carrying our babies without being interrupted by shame or guilt or fear, you know, recognizing where those feelings and awarenesses even come from so that we can, you know, respond appropriately to them and not be in cycles of, oh, well, I felt ashamed, but I knew I shouldn't be ashamed. So I, now I feel worse about feeling shame. I'm ashamed of feeling ashamed. Oh no. You know? mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and then people have fear, you know, and instead of being able to say, oh, well, what's the information here? What's the data I can get from this to be able to take whatever next step I have the capacity for um, using it that way. And then to the, the urgency, the, the fear of not doing enough um, that sometimes pressures people to overwork mm -hmm. and participate in, in competition that, that isn't just for fun. That's for uh, like a, a need to be recognized or, or survive somehow um, that are all tied to much more core feelings than just like, Oh, you know, uh, who's the best, what's the best baby carrier for me? Or who's the best uh, baby wearing consultant? Or, you know, who's the best doula school or whatever? No, it's like, who's a fit for you? What are the ways that are good enough for your needs at the moment? Um, mm -hmm. So the tangibles are, yeah, <laughs> 
work on ourselves, calibrate, um, get really comfortable with accountability so that the calibration can be effective and meaningful to everyone that uh, we interact with and, and allow for the work to happen in lots of different scales and, and places. I, yeah, I, I love hearing about what people are doing in other spheres where I'm not, I love to build so that we can support each other. And if there's research or knowledge or work that one of us has done that can help others, like some people that I've known of a carrier company just recently that got FDA approval for a device because it was easier to go that direction and medicalize a thing than to advocate for it as an ordinary practice. And so one of the biggest things for me, for birth workers, is for us to figure out what is our relationship to institution, to being enmeshed in and yet wanting to break down this huge structure that is out of any, that operates outside of any one of our control. So when there are regulations, can we, you know, like, like even talking about the certification problem. If there's a hospital that says, no, you can't run a baby carrier support group unless you have a credential. Mm-hmm. They don't seem to care that there is no accreditation agency that is like in any way valid <laughs> anywhere. I would say in the world for baby carrier use, this is something that can be medicalized and can be useful as an intervention, but that I think is not just that and should never be limited to being just an intervention. And and so when, how can we recover things? How can we get access without causing harm in other areas? That takes coordination. That takes us even knowing. So what is our relationship like? If we, if we try to get it, try to change the policy such that, um, you know, we can get in. Okay. We can't get into the hospital without a certification. Fine. I've tried to change it. They won't listen. Okay. I'll get a fucking certificate. I mean, the organizations I'm a part of and I myself, I'll certify people because it's just a piece of paper. Why not? This has been a fun, like self-awareness chat check too. But, you know, it's like, you want a certificate? Okay. But also, it's a tool that can be used to harm. Yeah. And I don't think they even know what they're looking for. I will be the first to say, and I hope that other people feel inspired to do the same. When there were rules that said that I had to bring a certificate to um, participate in supporting a client of mine, I brought a Photoshop certificate that was made for me Um, because I like they don't even know what they're looking for. And I had been doing this for decades, a decade at this point. And that's it's exactly that. They they don't know. It's a piece of paper. You're so right. It's just a piece of paper. What's the the TikTok or the meme? It's like they're gonna know. They're gonna. Know. <laughs> they're not gonna. Know. They're gonna know. <laughs> they, yeah, they didn't. They absolutely did not know. They looked at it. They were just like, "You're Michaela," and I was like, "Yeah, 
<laughs> they let me go. And then the next day when I went back after, you know, I went home and took a little break, they, they didn't ask for it and it was different people. So it's like, it, it really just depends who you get even. <laughs> yeah, I have. So yes, part of the the step for me, this, this tangible advocacy is whenever we notice a barrier, understanding it enough that we begin to be a part of taking it down. Mm-hmm. Right. So with the certification, if I were blocked or if someone's blocked, I'll say, okay, um, try to get the block taken down. If it can't, all right, let's give you a key. Let's get you in that gate. I'll, Mm -hmm. you know, I'll get you a certificate, no big deal. But also know that this is a tool that if you got through by using this tool, now that you are inside these gates, can you, from the inside, try to take down the requirement so that other people don't face it too? And this is why when I offer certificates, I try to always have this talk and I'm not going to, about when I do this, these certificates are a tool of empire, of power, of, of limitation and of oppression. And I don't like to use them now that I understand better. But we know that black and brown Um, especially femme folks, especially folks who are in caretaking roles, who are any number of other identities, who are devalued just for being these identities, often benefit from having certificates because they even need like five times the credentials and validation to get anywhere that people who have created and benefit from the structures of power now than they need. They get in with networking, with so few qualifications that we're like, you know, if offering certificates evens the access a little bit, (laughs) yeah, let's hand them out. And also, how do we do that without building into a world in which certificates are even required? So then we ask people, if you have to use your certificate, please do so unapologetically. And then... um, Can you make the areas that you access with that certificate more accessible to anyone who doesn't such that no one would ever have needed the certificates in the first place? And, and I've seen that happen in a few places. I've been a part of, you know, groups where when there was a college degree requirement for a job, we had argue email chains. I support friends who are doing this advocacy work in every way. If they need somebody to have particular qualifications for a thing that don't relate to the function of the job, can they get that removed or changed? Um, and yeah, this is, this is important, I think, to maintaining all of our access to these practices that are, should not be regulated. You are so right and so amazing. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, wow. I don't even have anything to add. You're so great. <laughs> um, well, since we and since we are talking about black and brown folk also, I've been as somebody that is 
of Mexican descent, right? And somebody that uses a rebozo um, beyond parenting and, and caregiving. And anyway, we won't get into that whole thing. How do we how do we ensure that we're not culturally appropriating baby wearing? I've been seeing this question and there's been a lot of different arguments and different sides. And I felt like baby wearing had come from kind of all over. So it's hard to, it's hard to differentiate like whose practice, like what belongs to which, which group. And so how do we ensure that we're not, quote unquote, culturally appropriating something that seemingly belongs to everybody? Is that is that a correct analysis or do you have any anything to offer? Do I, though? (laughs) Um, Yes, it the carrying of babies itself. Yes, is a practice that anyone can do and belongs to the traditions of us even reproducing and having families. However, the specific practices and the specific tools we use to do that might have specific cultural and heritage connections. And so for me, if we're talking about how do we not culturally appropriate when engaged in the practices of carrying our babies or baby wearing or any, anything in our lives. Like, how do we even talk without culturally appropriating? Um, there's so much that's subjective. And I think a lot of it, again, is in this model of self-awareness and calibrating impact, which means we get to be aware of what our impact is, which means we receive feedback, which means, again, like in transformative justice, we're talking about being able to validate and acknowledge what are the experiences of others? What is the harm? And how do we understand the things that contribute to harm? Not just the one person that does the cultural appropriation, but who are all the people involved in that the thing that they use to appropriate, to misappropriate a culture that's not theirs. How did that even come into being? How did they get access to that? There are so many points and, and, and connections through which cultural appropriation even has to happen. It's like, you know, if I uh, just, <laughs> if like somebody who, who doesn't belong to a culture appropriates alone in a forest, is it even, you know, <laughs> it has it, the perception of cultural appropriation is part of what's required for it to cause harm part, right, in society, in our interactions. So for people that, you know, don't want to culturally appropriate, I think it's like, get to know your intentions. What is it you want to do? Um, Why are you wanting to do it? Um, And is this, what are the, what is the power dynamic between you and the thing? Is it of you and your heritage and your cultures? Is it of somebody else's? And that can be difficult because there is gatekeeping. I know that we, when we have in-groups and we belong, sometimes we, and I mean this as all humans, right? Any group of people that has a shared identity, we might perceive that there are things that we do 
and uh, we don't do, and anyone who's not us, they do other things, and we don't know what that is. Um, but surely it's not good. And so if, if we know that, we're like, oh, our ways are better and their ways are not, until it gets to the point that, like with baby carrying, um, the people who currently are in power, those white Europeans um, who usually are the ones taking from others, and it's others too. I mean, it, we can have cultural appropriation um, because the power dynamics shift depending on where we are in the world. But I'm speaking from a U.S. context, from a United States context. So, you know, in, in these cases, it's your white European folks who have, through their own history, suppressed their own practices first in order to destroy family units, um, maintain control through government and religion, um, and power through fear and shame. And it's the, the descendants of that violence who often search out connection um, in a real human way, but end up taking from other people's cultures, people who they perceive as maybe less than in other ways or less human in specific ways. And, and to me, there's, that's, that's the harm there is that it's from, from violence that they do that instead of where everyone has been able to maintain connection to their own cultures and then just exchange knowledge. Oh, this is, this is what I, this is what I do that. What do you do? Oh, that's cool. But when we notice those patterns of, you know, conquest of colonization, the world we're in now shows the influence of the Europeans having gone to black and brown folks, other people after having messed up their own lands and their own, all that, um, that, and suppressing practices that now they revere, that they fetishize. And I think that's the specific thing. So if folks can be aware of those kinds of truths, those historical facts, then I think understanding what could be cultural appropriation, could be misappropriation, is much more obvious. I think it becomes confusing and hard for people when they don't know the histories and it all seems like a bunch of random rules and people just being sensitive as opposed to people being appropriately sensitized to histories, to cultural violence, and to um, the importance of integrity. And so, yeah, how do you not appropriate? You know, know, know the origins of the thing, the tool that you're using and the ways that you use it, the practices. And, and that's something we did speak about at one of the other sessions that, um, that we just finished, the, what was it, intersectional um, approaches to teaching baby carrying, which was the materials of the carrier come from somewhere. Do you know what they are? How did we appropriate from the resources we're supposed to share and take these literal molecules out of use elsewhere temporarily into the form of a carrier that we use? And where did the practices come from? Um, the people who began doing it and shared the knowledge such that um, we now have it. Um, carrying can happen spontaneously, right? If someone's carrying anything, it doesn't mean that, that it can't consistently generate in new ways from the ways we, we exist in the world, but it's doing that along with having 
these practices that are shared and passed down that that make it where we can understand it comes from somewhere and if we were offered that with without coercing it from someone else the tool or the practice um then i don't think that it's cultural appropriation true sharing right mutual benefit but if someone else profits if someone else benefits and other people specifically are excluded from that oof yeah i we have a problem we definitely have a problem with that um i i know that was a little bit conceptual did that get to an answer that you feel good about or should yes. i try again <laughs> yes so my understanding is of what you said in short is um to understand the origins and also to understand your intention um and i think that's that's a really big part too is is understanding like why why do you want to do this um and um it's also a thing to bring in transformative justice it's like Uh it's not even saying anyone could reasonably expect to never culturally appropriate right we might in tj like we plan on we just we just know we're imperfect we're going to make mistakes and sometimes those mistakes cause harm so then what do you do when you find out are you even open to finding out that you've caused harm right cool then what (laughs) then once you acknowledge it what do you do about it you have to explore and find out how to repair how to atone if you can Uh, what offers do we make Uh, the parties who are harmed are they able to um, express for themselves what they would like that would help repair the effects of the harm. Then, then we go through that because ideally we're in relationship with each other. We have these opportunities to make mistakes, uh, to learn from them and to understand how to not make them again and then offer re- and also offer repair as a part of it. That might be, I'm sorry. And here I'll stop using it. And I will work to know better and I will support everything about, you know, you being able to access the practice that I was taking for granted, these kinds of things. Yeah. Thank you. You're so great. Um, Wow. There's so much. Um, Is there anything else about baby wearing about transformative justice in birth work anything that you could think of that that you would like to share today that was inspired by the conversation that we've had so far i just that I would like them to know, I would like anyone to know that if they are interested in carrying babies, in transforming harm, in transformative justice, that I am one person among so many (laughs) who want to help you individually, whatever, connect to others doing it, the ability to do that the skills and knowledge and tools that you might need to be able to. And it 
I think for me, it's really addressing isolation as a result, as a, as a primary harm of violence um, that carrying can address, that transformative justice can address. Um, and I, I would like for people to feel like they don't have to feel alone or be alone if they don't want to. I mean, I'm actually an introvert and I do enjoy my alone time. So like I, I get wanting to be, to have self time, but I also know that I do better when I honor the fact that I need community and I, I love so many humans in my circles and I'm getting to these places where I can receive it, love also. And so, you know, transformative justice and baby carrying are expressions of, of that, ways we can express that to each other. And yeah, if you want to do any of it, let me know. I may not be your person. We may not like each other. We may not get along, but I will do my best to connect you to somebody who you can get along with. For, for this or anything. Um, and if I have caused harm in any of the ways that I work, I want to know about it. And you don't have to tell me if you don't want to talk to me, but you can tell someone in my accountability crew, um, which is on my website, you know, <laughs> um, tell them and they'll be like, yeah, you fucked up somewhere or you, you did something. And, and, and I need that. I need that kind of trust. And I would like other people to feel secure enough um, that they can have trust in other people to have that too, to be not alone in connection and having trust and being able to be accountable and be better for each other. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, it's just a baby carrier. <laughs> You are so cool. I can't say it enough. I know that I keep saying it. Um, but I mean it. You are so cool. And you're doing so much. And I have so many more things I want to talk about. For the sake of time, I won't I won't go crazy. Um, or you won't. Um, and this is right. A thing we talk about with language, right? And accountability. Yes. Yeah. Um, I'm also like thinking about the compliments and sitting here with my, my, my issues about receiving compliments. Um, and so I'm like, wow, I got to call Mickey later and be like, well, what did you mean by that? Exactly. <laughs> Not just taking it and saying, well, thank you friend. You know, But yeah, I mean, let's say, I don't know what, um, not overwhelm each other with yes. the possibilities for this this conversation. Yes, and thank you. And thank you for catching that. That is one that I'm I'm actively working on. But thank you. I really appreciate you holding me accountable. And that's all we can ask of each other and in our friend groups, in our social circles or Y'all, it doesn't have to be hard. It no. it is hard to confront. I don't like it. It's well, okay. It is hard for me. And I know yeah from reflection, it has been hard for others. But I like to take examples when we can in a moment. Sometimes mm -hmm. I'm the center of the example. 
And sometimes it's like another person. And I think this goes toward destigmatizing. Absolutely. Making mistakes and being imperfect. I don't love you any less, you know? (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) But like, can we do that? Like when you say, what are tangible things? Yeah. Can we do that with each other? Yeah. Can we figure out how to understand intentions when they can matter and that they can be good intentions? Mm -hmm. And if we have good intentions and they don't feel good or have good effects, that we let the person know so they can have the intended effect they even wanted. Absolutely. Like with carriers, if someone wants to carry their baby and they're kind of not really doing it, can we say, hey, can I offer you uh, some tips on that? It it looks like you want to do this thing. And if they say, no, I'm good, you can say, okay, cool. And we move on. And if they say, yeah, actually, I my neck's hurting. Then you're like, great. Here's here's what I'm seeing, and you know, mm-hmm. here's what I'm perceiving. And can we try this? Um, and then too, knowing that if we see a situation that looks alarming and dangerous, like life and death dangerous, we can accept and notice that we will not be using full consent models. We'll be like, hey, um, what you I think what you're doing is dangerous. Mm-hmm. Can I help you stop that? And then owning the consequences, being being able to accept whatever happens. If they get mad, then we're like, okay, that's fine. I, I accept that you could be mad because I didn't provide an opportunity for you to fully consent. And I had to act in alignment with my values and I did what I could to limit its effects on you to what we might understand as acceptable or predictable in a social situation. Okay, right. fine. Right. Anyway... Well, that was you trying to sign off. (laughs) No, no. I want to ask more questions. I didn't want to ask too many more questions. (laughs) And I was just double checking the time because I I didn't want to keep you past um, our agreed upon time. I do want to thank you for helping hold me accountable, especially with language and especially as somebody who identifies as an extrovert. I know that confrontation what I've been told in the past is that it can be hard to confront somebody that that is as confident or extroverted as I am um because they're afraid of of how I'll perceive it or um because I am so out I don't know out there and um that's a huge part of accountability though on on my end right is to be able to accept that and and correct that for example if i use the wrong pronouns for somebody i want to be corrected i i want to know that i did something that didn't feel good so i so i have the chance to fix it and so i i really appreciate that and i i hope that this part doesn't get edited out um because i, I want other people to feel comfortable um correcting but also receiving you know that that feedback and 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 understanding that it comes from a place of wanting us as a collective to do better to be better and believing that you as an individual part of a collective have the capacity to do better and that Mm -hmm. when you've said you wanted to in the past I'm going to believe you Even if I feel worried about a confrontation, I'm going to do my best to get there. And I hear a lot from 
other birth workers, other people who do organizing and advocacy work in our general fatigue, all our different kinds of battle, identity battle fatigue, Mm -hmm. that offering that feedback, giving the corrections can itself feel exhausting Mm -hmm. and can, can be triggering and draining. And, and so all the rest of us, when we're not actively in those modes, I think it's a great opportunity for us to create environments in which it becomes easier for anybody to offer that feedback mm-hmm. and to show that over time we can receive it mm-hmm. um, to lessen that, that initial burden or fear that is real. People literally act awful when confronted. So I'm never yeah. going to be mad if somebody doesn't correct someone. Um, and also even being corrected can be triggering and remind yeah. people of being literally policed um, in of their families, the environments in their families of origin yeah. where people are punished for doing something quote unquote wrong. Mm-hmm. And that if there's not connection to understanding why the corrections are even happening or internal belief that those corrections are legitimate, it can feel arbitrary and scary and destabilizing. So yeah, I like to say, please correct me. And I also know that if I'm in a situation, like as a teacher, I'll have a power dynamic present where somebody may not be able to or even want to. So Mm -hmm. it's on me to monitor myself and seek out specific relationships with people who aren't afraid of me. Mm-hmm. And that's where the accountability group was. I was like, hey, can you tell me no? If you can tell me no, even if I were to get mad, then I think I can trust you to call me yeah. on my shit. Well, and it helps you feel supported by the people in your circles and the people that you're spending your time with. I I feel loved and cared for when somebody wants to discuss something that I have done or said that that could perpetuate harm to either them or somebody else. I, I think there was a time too, where I, I'm, I'm not perfect. Right. I, I don't claim to be. Um, There was a time where I would be triggered by that. And my immediate response would be to get defensive. And, and that took and has taken a lot of work to understand that, that in the groups that I, move through and in the within the circles that I surround myself um, and the people that I surround myself with those people are discussing these things with me from a place of care right and so I can I can fully and confidently say that Omi when you point something out or when you want to discuss something that I genuinely feel like that's coming from a place of you caring about me and you caring about others, right? If, if Ari wanted to discuss something with me in a way that, you know, and because of something that I had said or done, I would take it the same way. And, and knowing that I don't surround myself with people that would do it to, to purposely harm me, right. To make me feel ashamed or, or to try to, um, make me angry. Um, so I think just trusting that that you've done the work to surround yourself with people and asking the people that you do care about to help hold you accountable can really change that. Um, yeah. Um, 
And I think one sort of end cap for this little, I guess, epilogue <laughs> to the baby carrier part of the conversation that I think of is something that's been um, a part of four different situations I can think of right now that have to do with accountability. And, and that is how we respond to the people who do hold themselves accountable or who are notified about harm they've done, which is to say, I want to be really careful to notice the identities that are currently in power, that are favored, that have access and not cater to and appease and fawn over those of us who, when we do harm, do the least, do the minimum that we should be doing, that I want us to be doing, to be accountable. And, and so like when you, for example, said, yes, thanks for the note. And you, I think you took it well. And all this is great. For then me to not turn around and be like, oh my gosh, Mickey, if only everyone were as accountable as you, you're so amazing. You're, I mean, you are, but not for this reason alone, right? <laughs> that, oh, I know it's so hard. It's just, it can become patronizing. It minimizes, it can minimize the experience of the harm and the people who were affected. It's, there's so many things that happen when we continue to act in line with the current patterns of power that when somebody like gets somebody's gender right and they're like, oh, good job. It's so amazing. You, you didn't misgender someone and they get complimented for it, you know, to speak to your example. I think it, ah, it, well, it annoys me, but it reflects, you know, our still like having internalized these lines of power. And I am, I'm saying this from someone who has to be aware of it myself and who has also been harmed when, for example, like um, that other people get catered to when I notify, like if I notify of microaggressions in a situation, then I become the, the, the problem, the, the troublemaker and everyone else who's upset that they were told they caused harm gets checked into. Oh, are you okay? I know it was hard. What, what Omi said to you, that was, that was so good that you received that feedback and, oh, are you okay? And no one's checked on me being okay after having overcome my internal fear of confrontation, my introversion, my wanting to just leave the situation mm -hmm. to have notified of that situation to say like, Hey, this wasn't okay. Y'all can we do something about it? And then they get complimented and, and comforted. And I'm sitting there internally shaking from the past experiences of being in confrontations that were not as trivial, that were bigger. Yeah. Um, and this, this pattern happens a lot. And I, I'm at this point now wandering. So I will stop. <laughs> I think I get the point across. No, Let's I think that's a great point. Uh, <laughs> Let's stop catering to the people with the power when yeah. we, when they do the minimum. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you so much for everything today. I feel like there's so much here and I feel like we could keep talking forever. I'm sure we'll continue these conversations um, outside of the podcast. <laughs> I'm, I'm still trying to figure out how to come up and visit you. <laughs> 
Yes, um, we are very close, and I think Ari said that they'd be jealous. Um, but I'm also trying to convince Ari to come out here, so maybe we could do like a a group thing or something. I'm tapping my um, fingers together in a mischievous plot yes sort of yes i'll see ari in two weeks and we could start making tangible plans for them to come visit me since i'm going to visit them um and we'll we'll go from there but yes i would love to continue these conversations um and just be your friend and now you're forced to be my friend So thank you everybody for listening and for listening to our love fest. And um, I hope that you were inspired to either baby wear, help make baby baby wearing accessible, um, or just transformative justice and accountability in general. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Birth Bruja podcast. Be sure to check out show notes for a list of resources mentioned during today's episode. Are you interested in learning more about the intersections discussed today? Visit birthbruja.com. We are an online educational platform devoted to decolonial approaches to healing and reproductive care. Offerings range from pre-recorded courses, eBooks, live workshops, and more. Want to keep this podcast running? First, be sure to subscribe and leave a review on your favorite listening platform. Second, visit birthbruja.com and check out our store to purchase apparel with one of many badass designs. Until next time, friends, thank you for all the ways you show up in this world. Blessings and gratitude.